Um, let me go here and get back into my notes. Now, you're going to want to keep your finger in that place because this particular chapter of the book of Revelation, chapter 6, it is one that requires us to do a lot of biblical gymnastics. And what I mean by that is I'm going to be taking you from passage to passage, from Old Testament to New Testament, and we're going to be flipping all over the place. And um, you're going to want to uh, follow along because I'm going to be tying a lot of prophecies out of the book of Daniel, out of Ma- the, the Gospel of Matthew, out of the book of Ezekiel. I mean, we're going to be everywhere, but we're, all, we're going to bring it all together to really bring some clarity to what we're reading here in Revelation chapter 6 as we continue on through our verse-by-verse study. Now, I will begin to read in verse 1, and if you'll want to follow along with me, it says in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse who sat on it, or a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. And that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. And so I looked and I beheld a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius. And three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come and see. And so I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades followed with him. And power was given to them a fourth of all the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be be killed as they were, was completed. And, and I really want to point out that, that verse, verse 11, really quickly. Um, that is not to say that God has appointed a certain amount of people to die for their faith. What that means is that God, God cares so much that He knows that number. He's watching. He's attentive. He's not, he's not ordained it or appointed it, but He knows. He says, I know What's going on? I know each and every one of you who are going to suffer for my name. And that's really a cool picture. And in verse 12, it goes on and it says, John says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of the hair, of hair, and and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth 
as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in caves, in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb of God. For great, for the great day of his wrath has come, <coughs> and who is able to stand? Father, again, I pray, God, that you would just use me. Father, I pray, God, that you would forgive me of my sins and anything that stands between me and you this morning is as you use me, Lord, to minister your word, to, to, to speak truth, and Lord, to lead people into hope. Father, I pray, God, that you would teach us and that the knowledge would not puff us up, but rather, Lord, that it would be converted into wisdom as we apply it to our lives. And Father, as we really see our need in these last days, Father, to, to, um, to recklessly and unashamedly love those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue on in these next chapters that we're reading here, we're being told, as you can see, but I just want to clarify it, we are being told about future events that are going to take place on this earth. Let me say that again. We are reading about future events that will take place on this earth. And all of these events center around two specific things. The first is God's judgment of all of the earth and the outpouring of his wrath upon it. Secondly, the second thing that this really involves or all kind of centers around is the redemption and the restoration of God's chosen people, the Jews, which will take place during this time that we're reading about now and during a time even in the midst of God's judgment and even in the midst of his wrath being poured out upon the earth. God will be redeeming and restoring his people to himself. Now these events and the time which they occur is what the Bible refers to 76 specific times in the Old Testament and the New Testament together. It refers to this time or these events that we're reading about as the day of the Lord. 76 times. Which consists of a total of seven years. A seven-year period of time that is divided in two different parts. And each part lasts a total of 1,260 days or three and a half years. Which, and, and this was prophesied by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. And for those of you who are doing the math, you need to know that the number of days that makes up these seven years is figured in accordance to a prophetic year. And a prophetic year consists of 360 days rather than the 365 days a year that are on our modern day calendar. And this is because the ancient calendars followed a lunar cycle of 360 days a year. So as we begin to look at these three and a half year periods of time, these two three and a half year periods of time, we first need to understand that scripture teaches us that these seven years are a countdown. Okay? They're literally a countdown of things that must come to pass, not necessarily of a time, but of things that, that must come to pass during this period of time before the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
at which time we are told that Jesus will descend from heaven and that he will sit upon a throne in Jerusalem and there he will rule and reign as Lord of Lords and King of Kings for a period of a thousand years. Now, in order to rightly understand what we are reading about here in chapter 6, and what we will be reading about next in chapter 7 in relationship to the rest of the book of Revelation, I'm going to give you my opinion. Just kidding. You know I don't do that. I'm going to give you other passages of the Word of God that reveals to us what we're reading here. I remember I told you if I'm giving you my opinion like that, you guys got to get up and walk out. <laughs> Paul was ready. <laughs> But here's the first thing you need to know. Okay, the first, first thing you need to know is I've been telling you over and over and over again that the book of Revelation is a very Jewish book. And, 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 and so we need to look at it in a particular light with Jewish cultures in mind and with Jewish customs in mind. It's a very Jewish book. And when we keep this in mind to begin with, the first thing that I want you to know is that, that, that when it comes to Jewish writing... It was customary, and it is customary, to, to um, it was customary that you would write the whole account of the story from the very beginning to the end in a brief way at the beginning of the story. So in other words, you would tell the story, the whole story, briefly. And this, this Jewish style of writing is much different than the style of writing that you and I are used to, the style of writing that we read, because the style of writing that we read today typically follows a Greek style of writing, in where the whole story is told throughout the whole book. There's not really necessarily a synopsis or an overview of the whole account in the very beginning. But Jewish writing is like that. And then what happens is the writing continues, the story is then retold. And when the story is retold, when it is accounted, it is done so in greater detail in order to put emphasis on certain characters and on certain events that make the story important. Here's an example. A good biblical example of this is found in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Now, who has ever heard um, people make the argument about well, how, do you, how can you believe that God created the heaven and the earth, and like the Bible says, when there's two different accounts in the book of Genesis? Have you guys ever heard anybody take that argument? There's two creation accounts in the book of Genesis. Which one are you supposed to believe? Well, my granddad, um, before he passed away, that was one of the arguments that he brought to me. And, and fortunately, I had the answer for him and, and because I had just studied this out not too, not too many days and weeks before that. It was a God-ordained thing, um, and this was many years ago. But a good biblical example of this Jewish-style writing is found in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 because in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we have the creation account told to us twice. Well, in Genesis chapter 1, we have a complete overview of all of creation. In other words, Jewish writing is giving us the beginning of the end of the story of the creation of all the world and everything is in it, the heavens and the earth, in, in, in a very short and, and, and um, summarized way. Then, when you get to chapter 2, the creation account is being retold. It's not a different creation account. It's a retelling of the creation, but it is being told again 
as the focus is then put on mankind, okay, not on the birds of the air or the fish of the sea or the stars or the, it's the, the, the focus isn't on all of creation, the focus is on one specific aspect of creation, and that is mankind. The, 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 and the reason for this is simple, because God has set us apart. God has breathed life into us. We were created in God's image. And so as there's this importance to the creation story in relationship to mankind, it goes on to, to retell this with the main point and the main focus being put on man and on his relationship with God, but specifically how this relationship with God was broken and how it would be restored. Now, I mention this because what we read here in Revelation chapter 6 and 7, which tells of Jesus, the Lamb of God, opening these seven seals on the scroll that he redeemed, which we read about in, back in chapters 4 and 5, is actually a beginning to the end. It's a beginning account of the end. It's, a, it, it's, it's, it's actually a beginning account of the seven years of tribulation, which are then described in greater detail with certain emphasis and certain focus in chapters 8 through 18. So we have a telling of the story in 6 and 7, of the seven-year period of time, custom to Jewish writing. And then when we get to chapters 8 through 18, we see the detailed account of this being retold to us. That helps us to clearly understand now what we're reading here. And so with this contextual understanding, we can also see from another passage of Scripture, specifically the words of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 24, how these seven seals of judgment, which are an overview of the seven years of tribulation, we can see how they directly line up with what Jesus said about these things and about how these things would come to pass during this time. Go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 through 14. Now, I'm going to read that. Give you a second to get there. Starting in verse 3. In verse 3, it's the disciples speaking. And really what they're doing is they're asking Jesus about end times things. And they say in verse 3, the disciples say, they came to him privately, we're told, after Jesus had been speaking about the destruction of the temple and different things, and they say, tell us when these things will be. In other words, Jesus had spoken about certain events in regards to end-time things, and, and the disciples, they wanted more of the details. And so they came to him and said, tell us when these things will be, that's question number one, and what will be the sign of your coming, that's question number two, and of the end of the age. Question number three, the disciples asked these three questions, and Jesus, answering the questions, it says, said to them, take heed to yourselves that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated 
by all nations for my sake. I think it's at this point the disciples were probably going, as many of us have in our own lives, going, oh, I wish I hadn't asked that question. But Jesus goes on and he says, and then many will be offended will be, and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because, of law, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all of the world as a witness to all of the nations, and then the end will come. Now, do like I'm doing. Keep your, your Bible place here in Matthew chapter 24, and, 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 and keep another hand over here in, Re, in Revelation chapter 6, because I'm going to draw some connections here for you, and you're going to want to flop back and forth. Because... As we take the answers that Jesus had given to his disciples and look at these three questions that are answered and compare them to what we have just read in Revelation chapter 6, we see a series of events being accounted. And again, it helps us understand the things that John saw and wrote about. For example, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 and 5, Jesus is telling them, he's given them a warning and said, be careful that no one deceives you. Why? Because who's coming? The false prophets, matter of fact, those who come and say, I am the Christ. Well, if you look over to the first seal, we see that there's a white horse. And on that horse is a rider. And that rider is, is pronounced to be conquering and a conqueror. And this false prophet or this, 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 hoarder, this um, rider on this horse is really the Antichrist. And I will speak about that in a little bit greater detail and you'll see why this is. And that's a connection to the first thing that Jesus spoke of, the first seal. Now look at the second thing that Jesus spoke of in verse 6. In verse 6, Jesus says, and you will hear of what? Wars and rumors of wars. Turn over to Revelation chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. The second seal, a red horse, brings what? War. Okay? In verse 7 of Matthew, the next thing that Jesus speaks about is famines and pestilence. The third seal, the black horse, brings in famines in verses 5 and 6. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 7 and 8, the specific focus on those verses is on the death that comes as a result of these things. And the fourth seal, the pale horse, is the one who brings who's riding on that, on that horse, death. With, with Hades following, we'll talk about that. And then in Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 13, the, the, Jesus goes on to talk about being martyred, about being put to death, those who are faithful. Well, the fifth seal, verses 9 through 11, is what? It's all about the martyrs. As the seal is open and the martyrs are seen underneath the altar, crying out with a loud voice. And then lastly... In verses 10 through 13 in Matthew chapter 24, um, really what's being talked about here is just this worldwide chaos and, 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 and those who endure and, and, and how some will be saved. And, 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 and with the sixth seal, um, uh, we see in verses 12 through 17 that there's this great earthquake and the moon is black and, or, or the sun becomes black and the moon becomes red and all this massive destruction with the land moving and, and, and it's this picture of worldwide chaos. 
And so we see the Lord speaking about these things, and we see again the preview of the events that we'll look at in detail being uh, revealed to us here in the seven seals. Now, the last thing I want to point out before we look at, at chapter 6 in detail is that in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, we are told about witnesses, witnesses who will come and preach the gospel to all the nations, and then the end will come. And if you look ahead with me over to Revelation chapter 7, you will see that there's a seventh seal. Of course, there were seven seals on the scroll. And in Revelation chapter 7, we are told about 144,000 what? Witnesses. That are given the seal of the living God, and then the salvation of God, we see, is what is being sung by a great multitude in heaven. So, with this understanding, go back to Revelation chapter 6. And in verses 1 and 2, looking at this first seal, John in the throne room of God says, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures, and you remember these creatures around the throne room of God, all having really creepy looking faces and, 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 and wings and eyes and in them and on them. And one of these creatures saying with a loud voice, matter of fact, it says, a voice like thunder. Come and see. And I looked and beheld a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, the first seal that the Lamb opens is what this is doing. John there in the throne room of God, the seal's opened by the Lamb of God, and a vision comes forth for John to see. But with the opening of the seal, there's also the mention of one of these four angels described back in Revelation chapter 4, verse 7. And when he speaks, it's in a way that commands or grabs John's attention. Now, I don't think that John wasn't paying attention but I suspect that he was distracted and probably even entranced at this time, considering he was still in the throne room of God, which had to have been pretty awesome from what we read about. But also, if you remember, he was there with millions of worshipers that we read about in chap- back in chapter 5 who were singing the praises of the Lamb of God. Now, I don't know about you. You know, there's, there's maybe a hundred or so of us here. I don't know. But when we were worshiping together and I could hear your voices, it was a pretty awesome thing. As we were all worshiping together, there's kind of an, uh, an, an enthralling thing that takes, an entrancing thing that takes place as we enter into the presence of God. And, and, and I imagine that John being there in this time with these things going on was also entranced. So according to verse 1, this angel's voice then rings out like a clap of thunder, loud booming voice calling John's attention and the first thing that John saw was this white horse and a man riding on it and this man we're told had been given a bow and a crown to go conquering and to conquer now this writer as I said appears to be the antichrist and typically when we think of the word anti we 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 relate that to uh, being against something And even though the Antichrist is certainly against Jesus Christ or against God, the better meaning of anti in this case is to say that it it really um, means fake or false. It's a fake Christ, a false Christ. Meaning that the Antichrist, when he comes, 
he's going to look like a good guy. Now think back to the old westerns. The good guy always rode a what colored horse? And the bad guy wore a black colored horse or a black hat. Yeah. And so now think about that in relationship to the Antichrist because he's a fake. He's a false, right? And so when he comes, do you think he's going to be on a black horse with a black hat with a pitchfork kind of a thing? No. That's, that's never how Satan or his ministers present themselves, do they? He's not, he's not that, but as a fake or as a false, um, we know that the good guy always comes in as the hero on a white horse, but this guy is nothing more than a fake. He's a false, and he masquerades really as the real Savior. And what we will later be told in Revelation chapter 19 is that when Jesus, who is the true Christ, comes, he will also ride in on a, because he's the good guy. But Jesus, the true Savior at that time, we're told that he has eyes like flame of fire, many crowns upon his head, and a sword which comes forth from his mouth. And he, we're told, he, when he comes, he brings peace to all of the earth. The point is, is the Antichrist, like all of Satan's deceitful workers, disguise themselves to look like good guys in order to deceive people and to lead them astray. So we should expect nothing less from the Antichrist who is to come. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, it really tells us this. It says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if he ministers, if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. So, when the Antichrist comes, Jesus warns them in Matthew chapter 24, be careful, don't be deceived. Because the Antichrist will become masquerading. He'll come masquerading as a good guy, having a bow as his weapon. And the thing to consider about this bow, often when you look at Scripture, you should notice what's there, but you should also notice what's not there. So what's not there? If we told that this guy has a bow in his hand, what does he not have? No quiver. No, no arrows. How useful is a bow in war with no arrows or no quiver? Unless you're Legolas from, from uh, Lord of the Rings, you've probably not got a fighting chance. However, this reveals to us the way that this false masquerader will come into power. He comes into power without ever firing an arrow. That's what we're told. And this might seem strange, but the fact of the matter is, is when the Antichrist is accepted by the world as a conqueror and takes the position of power, it's not through the act of a war. It's through the brokering of a peace treaty that is supposed to last for how many years? Seven years. And this is what is written about in Daniel chapter 9. You can look there and turn if you want. Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. In that, in that passage, Daniel writes and he says, he's speaking about the 70 weeks of Daniel. He speaks about 62 sevens and then he goes on and he says, he says and after the 62 sevens, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. 
And really, that was a reference to the number of days that it would be from the rebuilding of the, from the decree of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah. And we know that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on what we remember as Palm Sunday, if you look back to the decree that was given by um, uh, uh, Artaxerxes, is that you can count down those number of days and it is the exact day that Jesus came in to Jerusalem and allowed the people to declare him to be the king, their king. But it says, after that time he shall be cut off, but not for himself. Kind of makes sense, right? Why was Christ cut off? For us. And the people of the prince, okay, not the prince yet, but the people, it says, of the prince who is to come, meaning the Antichrist, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the, and the end of it shall be with a flood. And till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for seven years, for one seven. But in the middle of that last week, that seventh week, the seven years, that one, one section of seven, it says, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of desolation shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Now I'm going to tie a few things together because this war of desolations that Daniel is speaking about or that he writes about is prophesied in detail in Ezekiel chapter 38. I'm not going to read from there, but you can go and look on your own. And in this passage, we're told about the nations of Gog. Who's ever heard of Gog and Magog, right? So these are the nations of Gog that are mentioned in Ezekiel 38. This is, these are the people of the prince that is to come, the people of the Antichrist. And, 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 and its allies, all the allies of the nation of Gog, who are all, it tells in Ezekiel chapter 38, north of Israel. Does Israel have any allies now north of them? No, they used to. The last one was Turkey. Guys, we, you got to understand that these things that have been taking place, the Bible's told about them thousands of years ago. And we are seeing them come to pass. The stage is being set. And this, what we're reading about, is getting ready to unfold. Real things that will take place on this earth that we see lining up right now. So, by the way, all of these nations are mostly what kind of nations? Are they Christian? No, they're Muslim nations, aren't they? That always hasn't been the case either. And all these nations, with all of their allies, will gather together, we're told, and they will attack Israel. But when they attack, we're told that God will intervene on Israel's behalf. And listen, the death toll of these armies that come against, <laughs> that come against Israel is so great that we read that it literally takes seven months for Israel to bury all of the bodies. As a result of this vicious war the Antichrist is able to come on the scene and make himself appear as a conquering conqueror with a bow in the hand and no arrows. In that, through his pompous words, we read about later in the book, in the book of Revelation, that he is able to establish a peace tree among these nations. And in light of this, he is seen by the world to be a savior. 
Not the Savior, but a Savior. But the reality is, is he brings a false peace. And how do we know that? Because what follows this one on the white horse? Wars, famine, and death all ride in behind him. And in verse 3, we read about this. And it says, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take what from the earth? Peace from the earth. And that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. So the second seal releases a fiery horse. Its rider takes peace from the earth, and then the people of the earth rise up and begin to kill one another. Now, this begins to happen on the prophetic timeline that Daniel writes about at the three-and-a-half-year mark of the seven-year period of time. And at this time, the Bible teaches us that the Antichrist will have suffered, this peacemaker will have suffered a mortal wound. And perhaps from an assassination attempt, we don't know for sure, but it'll appear to the entire world that he is resurrected back to life. In addition to this, we're also told that the Antichrist is then energized or empowered or in dwelt, I don't know for sure how that all works, but he's, there's, there's, a, there's a satanic influence that comes over him and in him. And he is able by this satanic power or influence to deceive many, it says, by doing things that have the appearance of being miraculous. Consequently, after three and a half years of peace, the Antichrist will go into the reconstructed temple there in Israel, into the holy of the most holies, the holy place, and he will sit down, we're told, and he demands himself to be worshipped as God. A false, a fake. The Bible refers to this event with a little phrase called the abomination of desolations. And it is spoken of in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. It's where you were just at. You may have your hand still there. You can look in verse 27. Because in verse 27 it says, Speaking of the Antichrist, Then he, the prince of the people to come, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of that week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Why? Because they're offering sacrifices and offerings to who? to the one true God, and he sits down to declare himself to be God, so he brings it into the sacrifices and offerings, and it says, on the wings of an abomination shall be the one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Now, if you go forward in just a couple of chapters, you can check, I'm not taking these things out of context, but in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, following this, this prophetic account, it says, in verse 31 of chapter 11, and forces shall be mustered by him, or an army shall be raised up by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolations. And lastly, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, in the very next chapter, we also read on, following this prophetic account, it says, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, remember, this is all a countdown, 
A time of things that have to take place until what? The coming of the Messiah. And it says, and it says, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and that the abomination of desolation is, desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. We know the exact day from that point when the Messiah, when the Christ, when Jesus, the true Christ, will return. And in light of this, back to Matthew chapter 24 with me, and in light of this, Jesus speaking about these end times events still went on to issue an additional warning starting back in verse 15. Okay, are you there? Matthew chapter 24, verse 15 through 22, and he said this, Therefore, when you see the what? Abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, and he says, whoever reads, let them understand. May that please be us today. May we understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let them who is in the housetop not go down for anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant, and woe to those who are nursing babes in those days, and pray that your flight might not be in the winter or on the Sabbath, for, when, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. For the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Guys, it is at this point that God begins to remove, we're told, a spiritual blindness from the eyes of His people, of the Jews, of the nation. And at that time, they'll recognize this prince of, this, this, this prince of the people to be a false. They'll recognize Him to be the Antichrist that is spoken of in the book of Daniel. They'll realize who he really is, and then in turn, they will begin to come back to God, God's people. And God will protect them, we're told, during the remaining three and a half years of this tribulation. And in doing so, God will fulfill his covenantal promises to his people. And they will come to know, ultimately, Jesus is their Messiah, and be redeemed and be restored back to God the Father. As we read on in Revelation chapter 6, Man, we need about another hour. If we read on in, in verses 5 through 6, we see that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is opening the third seal. And this seal releases a black horse, and, and the rider has scales in his hand, implying, implying judgment and, 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 and the wane of, of judgment. And, and at the same time, a, vo a voice is heard that is declaring, a cord of wheat will cost... Uh, a denarius and three quarts of, 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 of barley will cost a denarius. But also this angel, as he speaks out, says, don't harm the oil or the wine. And in light of this, the first thing to point out is that these scales that John saw are really an indication of how the government is intervening at this point. Okay? The government is intervening at this point and is really taking control of, the, of what's left of the world's supplies. Almost like a martial law kind of effect. And it appears that this, this is the result of these wars, which, will be, um, which, which ultimately makes just basic resources so scarce that the little bit is available will have to then be rationed out. 
And what do you know about the government? Is the government fair? <laughs> Are they really looking out for the people? It's not going to be any different then. So this rationing is going to be, um, it, it's, it's, it's not really going to be a good thing. And this is where we know that the mark of the beast, that you guys have heard of that. Who's heard of the mark of the beast? Yeah, and this is where the mark of the beast, again, an overview of all these events that are coming to take place, which we'll look at in detail as we study through the rest of the book. But um, this is where the mark of the beast that most everybody's heard about comes to play. And in order to buy or sell, we're told that a person will have to receive a mark either on their forehead or on their right hand. And in Revelation chapter 13, verses 15 through 17 this is really accounted in more detail where it says, he was granted the power to give breath to the image of the beast. So there's some kind of image of the beast that's been constructed. The Antichrist then has this demonic power and it says, so that the image of the beast should both speak and cause many to not, uh, and, and cause many as would um, not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and small, or small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except he who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, I pray that none of you are here when that happens. If you are, don't take the mark. We'll talk about that later. Don't do it. Now, the famine that comes when the seal is open, this, this, this third seal... It indicates that um, things are bad, right? I mean, that's the implication. The things are bad. So bad that one quart of wheat will cost a denarius, which is, which is really the equivalent of one day's um, wages of a laborer. Um, in other words, minimum wage. One full day's work of minimum wage. And one quart of wheat is about what it takes to make a loaf of bread, and this means that with the current federal minimum wage, which I know the state of Colorado is a little bit more, but the current federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour, that means that a single loaf of bread, if it was to happen today, would cost about $58. Can you afford that? Now, one last thing to note before we move on is that the oil and wine, which we see here where this angel says, hey, listen, leave the oil, leave the wine, is really a symbol, it's symbolic of um, wealth. Um, um, it's, it's symbolic of, of um, still a, even in the midst of this famine, there's still a richness that is being partaken of. And um, what we know is that as much like what is going on in the world today is that you have these very two extremes, you know, in the world. If you take the world as a whole and look at it, you see the very wealthy, which by the way, if you live in the United States and you even are at poverty level in comparison to the world, you are very wealthy. And on the other hand, there's extreme poverty. And this will be... Um, accentuated during this time. There will be very wealthy and there will be the very extreme poor masses. I think we can... Oh my goodness. We can't. Okay, you're going to have to come back next week for the rest of this. We are not getting till chapter 7, probably for a little while longer. Listen, the worship team wants to come up. I'm still going to end with what I wanted to end with and that is where we began. 
If, if you don't know God as your Savior, if you don't are uncertain, uh, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you're uncertain about what your future holds, your eternal future, it's important that you settle these things as you're learning about these things, that you settle that in your heart. You see, the thing that I want you to know about this death in Hades that is riding in on this, on this, um, this black horse. Um, no, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Well, we'll get to that guy next week. But the thing that you need to know is that with a physical death, your soul goes to live on. God has created all of us. We look back to the creation story. It says He created us in His likeness. And that, what that means is He's created us different from any other thing with the ability to live for all eternity. And once this life is over, we're all going to live. The question is, is what resurrection will you be resurrected into? The Bible tells us that those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, those who accept the gift of His death on the cross and receive forgiveness of sins, it tells us that when we die, we will be resurrected into life. But for those who don't, there's a resurrection of death, a resurrection of eternal death, where you will suffer at the torment and judgment and the wrath of God for all eternity. And that's not God's desire for you. God's pouring out all of these things, and we read about it, and we go, man, God's so mean. And you may feel like that at times, but the truth is, is God's long-suffering God's patient, God's merciful, and He's brought you here this morning so that you would hear the truth and that you would be saved before the wrath comes. You see, we cry out today in the midst of this world we live in and we see the tragedies and the injustices around us and we go, if God's a good God, how come He doesn't stop these things? Where's the justice? And God is a merciful God, a patient God, a loving God, and He is willing that none repents. So there is a time that He is holding back, withholding His wrath, His judgment, the making of all wrong things right. He's holding that all back so that people might be saved from the wrath and the judgment to come. You see, we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve the wrath and judgment. None of us wants it. We want others to get it when we look around and see it, but we don't want it ourselves. But the truth is, apart from Jesus Christ, this, what we're reading about, is only beginning of what is waiting for you. So I would cry out to you this morning to know that before God is a, a, a just God, before he, you, you know Him as a, a God of wrath who deals with people in, in truth and in righteousness, know that He is a gracious God, a long-suffering God, a merciful God who wants you to be saved. And He's done all the work for you on the cross. All you got to do is say, I want that gift. If you guys will close your eyes.